0: Well, once again, we're grateful that Malka and Natalia help us to put together some, some hymns every week. What we're discovering here this morning in the book of Romans, chapter 1, there is something like a prequel taking place here. They, they've begun to in, in recent times telling a story either in a book or in a movie, and then five years later, ten years later, they'll they'll produce a a version of that story called a prequel, which is the story that happened before the part that you're familiar with. And so we're going to ponder on some of the pre-things of the gospel here. In Romans 1 today, last week, we were purposefully reading over many of the references that speak to Paul's calling as an apostle. We uh, spent some time contemplating the signs and works accompanying true apostolic prophecy. Those were some of the points we were working on. Paul was separated in the gospel of God. Men can know and can only know and and, and come to understand the wrath of God, which is introduced in in the book of Romans, because of apostolic revelation, because of prophetic revelation. This isn't something that men just dreamed up. It is something that God and His grace has shared with men. And so we actually learn in the book of Romans that one of the reasons God gave apostleship to men was so that men might come to obedience to the faith. It actually says among all nations here in the first chapter of Romans. God gave apostleship to the world for obedience to the faith among all nations. So it is the apostles who have been given this task of, of revealing the gospel, and it's the church's job to be the place of of truth, a place to uh, preserve and, and proclaim the truth of God's gospel. One of the points I think is is really profound that in unless someone like the apostle or the excuse me the Old Testament prophets, unless they are to make known the revelation of God, we're ignorant of God's mind and of his revelation to men. We don't know what it is that God thinks and what it is God has to say to men But by his grace. He has given to men this revolution (laughs) of a revelation in Christ. We've looked at the first few verses here, but what you know is that Paul is a slave. Before he was named Saul, He's a slave of God. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an apostle separated to God's gospel. So if we begin to uh, read here just at verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle or a messenger, separated or horizoned to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Of course, that being the group of Christians who meet there together in Rome. So Paul's introduction very specifically says that this is God's gospel, God's gospel in the mouth of the prophets. Paul, joining the prophets in prophetic history, in opening his mouth, as it were, in beginning to write this letter. The gospel, God's gospel, which we read here as a prophetic gospel, is a gospel that has been announced in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Remember, that's in the opening lines of the book of Hebrews. And many times or in diverse manners, some of your translations would say God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. This is how God has spoken to men and made his revelation to men known. So when we get to verses uh, 3 and 4, here in this amazing letter, we read that this gospel promised before is... Verse three, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is born the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So we're going to consider in these lines here most of our time this morning is sonship and lordship. Sonship and Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, it says, the word is Kurios, the word means master. It speaks of a person's authority, it speaks of his um, supreme position over those who call him Lord. That's what a Lord is, that's what a Kurios is. Our Lord is of the seed of David. And our Lord is declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of Holiness. There's a twofold witness that Paul speaks about here. Two reasons that you can establish in your mind or in your heart why you would affirm these things are true. Paul will, throughout this book and in most of his writings, he he, he isn't just saying stuff to persuade you on a popular level. He's not just sharing people's opinions, he's actually persuading people with very persuasive arguments. And so, this argument here is that the Lord is the Lord, seed of David according to his humanity, and the Son of God according to the Holy Spirit. There's this twofold witness deity, the Lord Jesus Christ is God, and human kingly relations to David. This is the point that is being made here. One of the things that most people, especially of Israel, knew is that the Messiah was promised to Eve. The Messiah was promised to Abraham. And the Messiah was promised to David as well. And so one of the beautiful things when we begin to understand the larger picture of Scripture is how what in the early days of gospel revelation, what it looks like spoken through uh, God's Spirit to Eve, when she understands who and what the Messiah is going to be, there's very, very little known, right? But as it takes uh, more and more development, as the prophets speak over the course of time, we begin to understand uh, passages like 2 Peter one twenty-one. We, we We learn that there is this progressive revelation taking place in Scripture through the prophets. <clears throat> First P, uh, 2 Peter 1 21 says, kind of understanding that the mind and the work and the labor of the prophets, he says, Um, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in the case of Adam and Eve, that record is there by revelation given to Moses. That record is there. And you see just a a grayscale image, very, very light and, and, and shallow detail of the revelation right and the prophets are moved by the holy spirit bringing this revelation and bringing what you can see as a slowly developing picture right a picture that ultimately brings us to the death and resurrection of of Christ 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 reminds you, it teaches you about how the apostles themselves joined the group of the prophets, and the prophets and the apostles were earnestly looking and waiting to, to see what it was that was being shown to them by the prophets. First Peter 1 Peter 1.10 says, of the salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come. Prophets, from the time of the beginning, would prophesy their own little piece of the final picture, but they searched. Of this salvation, the prophets inquired and searched, and they had prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating. The prophets knew the spirit of God was was compelling their their mind and hand to write and to give this revelation. So this prophetic history of this slow, slowly being revealed gospel, this slowly developing picture that is being brought upon men, we're eventually going to see in Second Samuel chapter seven where the references made to David the one who would sit on David's throne would have an eternal throne. That prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 is what is being referred to by Paul here. 2 Samuel 7 is why we know that the faithful, that the prophets, were looking for someone to come in the line of David. David. 2 Samuel 7, 12. At the end of David's days, look at what it says. When your days are fulfilled, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. The seed of David would have a kingdom established by God, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David comes to the understanding, as did the nation of Israel, as have Christians over the centuries known that the Messiah was to come in the line of David. King David's son, according to the flesh, would rule and reign as a king. Forever, So the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed Son of the King. He's a Son of the King. Um, There's a picture there, Randy. It's kind of a funny, almost circular-looking cartoon picture there. I don't know if you can uh, know how to get that picture up on the screen here. But what you would do is select it there and then toggle the screen on here. Um, What we see in this picture is two separate roots here, um, both Joseph's lineage and Mary's lineage. That's why there's two separate circles in this picture here. And so here's Mary, and here's Joseph, and here's David over here in the red, and so When we see this here, Luke is the one who explains this particular genealogy in the purple, and Matthew explains this one here. They both come together in similar characters here in the middle, and then they branch off again, and we get to Joseph and Mary. And so what Paul says without going into much explanation, but that many, if not most, would have already known, is that both Mary and Joseph... Or in the kingly line. And they would know that Jesus Christ was a person who was related in the flesh to David, making him in the line of King David. The second witness, you can turn that off if you want there, Randy. The, the second witness that, that Paul refers us to here The the, the second way Paul is making the point that he is making about this Lord and about this gospel of God, it's concerning the Son. It's concerning the Son. He makes this point by saying that we know about Christ's Sonship. We know about the Lord Jesus' Sonship by his resurrection from the dead. This is another witness. And so the word gospel, I'm sometimes going to say, is the evangel. I'm going to say that sometimes in this message because the word gospel comes from the word evangel. And it means the heralding or it means the good news. It's a proclamation of good news. And so I want to talk to you for a moment about some misnomers about sonship. He is said to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness. And we want to ponder for a moment or two by looking at Matthew 22. I want you to think about what it means that he is called the son there in Romans chapter one by the spirit. He's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Matthew 22, it makes a very, very interesting a lesson about his sonship. And you're going to have to listen carefully, and you're really going to have to think carefully about what it is that the Lord Jesus is teaching when he goes on to this subject here. Matthew 22, verse 41, says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, the way this question is answered shows you all. Very clearly that the Jews knew who the Christ would be related to. They understood where the Messiah would come from. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. They knew about the reference we just looked at, of course, in Second Samuel 7. The Pharisees and many of the Jews, if not all of the Jews, knew the Lord Jesus would be born in the line of David. So then the Lord Jesus continues this conversation by saying, He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? The Lord Jesus says, Why? If he's the son of King David, why does King David call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And there the Lord Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. So the Lord Jesus is saying, why does David say in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord? Why did he say that, Pharisees? If David then calls him Lord, Pharisees, how is he his son? You guys understand the nature of the question. You understand the nature of the conundrum about sonship that is being put to the Pharisees here. Pharisees, you say he is supposed to be the son of David. Why does David call him Lord? This is an important theological question about what we are considering here. He who is, he who is declared to be the son of God with power. By the Holy Spirit. What is meant by this sonship? After the Lord Jesus asked this question, how is he his son? It goes on to say, Matthew says, no one was able to answer him a word. From that day on, did anyone dare question him anymore? Why? They couldn't figure this out. They did not know how to answer this question about the sonship. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great conversation because son often and usually implies genealogy. If somebody is a son of somebody, we know who his father is, we know who his grandfather is, we understand genealogy by using the word son. We also understand, in some degree, inferiority, which is why this question was a difficult question. In other words, why did the superior, David, call the son Lord? That's what Jesus was asking when he asked that question. Why did he ask this? Why does, why does the one who is the great one call the lesser one Lord? This is the essence of the question. So the Lord Jesus is actually going to correct limitations of both language and culture. The Lord Jesus is making corrections even so that you would properly understand what this sonship means. God's son is mostly not like Other sons. God's son is mostly not like other sons. His incarnation at Bethlehem and his prophesied relations to David both insist his human qualities. You guys know he was born in Bethlehem. You know he's born in the line of David. And these insist at least some human characteristics and human qualities. We even know that since he is born in the line of David, he should inherit the throne of David. You and I easily understand these concepts. He has a birthday. He has a mother. He has a father. He has infancy. He has developing manhood. And he has a day of death. All of these things are true about the Lord Jesus Christ. These are true to his manhood. And since he's called God's son... Your mind and my mind are are bound to some conventions. That is your brain, your knowledge of our culture, know certain things about fathers and sons that are going to force you to make some wrong conclusions about God's son. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Did the Lord Jesus Christ learn to eat and walk from his father, God? It's a little bit of a tricky question because the Lord Jesus did indeed learn to walk, didn't he? Yeah. He, he? He actually nursed and he was fed because he was a little baby. Did the second person of the Trinity learn to walk from God the Father? No. And so this, this is a tricky thing to think about for a moment, isn't it? Is the father of Jesus 30 years older than Jesus? Is Joseph 30 years older than Jesus? Well, in one manner, of course, yes, right? But in another manner, you all know the answer is no. And so when this question is put to the Pharisees about the son of David calling his son Lord is a little bit of a tricky question, isn't it? Did David's Lord who is the only begotten of the Father, derive his honor or his status from David? Did David's Lord derive his honor from David? You guys understand the question? Is the, is the one who is the Christ that they knew was to come in the line of David, did he receive his honor from his relations to David? No, and yet, yes. In other words, nobody else was in line for the throne of Israel. And yet, why should David call his child Lord? Why should David call a great, 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 great grandchild Lord? This is what is bound up in this question when the Lord Jesus has this conversation with the Pharisees. Jesus Christ is David's Lord and his son or grandson. Those are both true things. Look at the Psalm 89, 35 and 36. We'll, we'll, we'll end it back here in Romans, but look at Psalm 89, 35 and 36. Psalm 89, verse 35 Says, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness of the sky. The son who is related to David according to his human nature is recipient and the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. But he is also declared to possess a divine and unending life. Both of these things are true about the son of David. So the scripture speaks about this son, the son referred to in Romans 1, declared to be the son of God with power. Son, in this case, includes these truths, includes these qualities. And so we need to take care to frame our understanding of Son with the words and the revelation of Scripture so that we avoid heretical understandings of what Son is. We don't want to be heretics in describing who the Son is. David's Lord breaks Conformity. He breaks convention of language because this son, this grandson, exceeds the king in honor. This son exceeds the king in majesty. He exceeds the king in authority. David's son is his Lord, but he is born with an exceeding greatness, a surpassing greatness and glory. His Lord is born in the line of the king and yet he derives his own kingly and authority and dignity. From whom? Why is this son possess a greater majesty and a greater authority? Because he is deity. It is because he is God. It's from his divine nature. That is how we make sense of Psalm 110, which prophetically tells you and I, by the prophets tells you and I, that the one who is the son of God, born in the line of David, it is the one, it is the place that tells us and it is how we understand that he is both divine and human. The spirit declares Him the son. How? Here in Romans One, look at how it is. How does the Spirit make this declaration? How is this made clear? It says the Spirit declares it according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. How is He declared Son? By the Spirit? By the resurrection. This is how the Spirit makes this known. This is how the Spirit shows Christ's deity. So I wanted to ponder with you for a moment too. An additionally important question is, is who raised the Son? Who raised the Son? It's possible that Seeing the Son in the grave and seeing the Son raised by God the Father or by the Spirit would cause you to see Him as especially needy, as in not completely God. It's possible that you would see the second person of the Trinity in the crucified Jesus in the grave being raised by the Father as somehow a little bit less than God. But what I want to help you see is that He is fully God. He is not uh, possessing a baby like helplessness that couldn't help himself. And so if we were to look at 1 Peter 1 3, 1 Peter 1 3, we're going to answer the question, who resurrected the Son? 1 Peter 1 3. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who raised Him from the grave? God. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 2.24 Acts 2.24 Acts 2.24. I'm going to start in verse 23. Him, the Lord Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Who raised Jesus from the grave? God. So we've seen two references here that says it is God who has raised him up from the grave. Look it back at Romans one now one four um, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Who raised the second person of the Trinity from the grave? in in this reference here, it says, through the spirit of holiness. According to the spirit of holiness. So now we're seeing maybe it's the Holy Spirit who raised Him from the grave. Look at Romans 8.11. just a few pages ahead there. Go to Romans 8.11. It says, if the spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In that reference, it says, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus. The Spirit, obviously, is a Holy Spirit. The Him is, it's either Triune God or God the Father, the Spirit of Him. And so it's it's, maybe a tiny bit difficult to discern. Again, we see the Spirit and we see God the Father, the Triune God, potentially, credited for raising the Lord Jesus from the grave now look at John chapter 2 and John chapter 10 we'll look at two references in John John chapter 2 19 19? 219 John 2:19 2, the Lord Jesus is speaking. And what does the Lord Jesus say? He says Jesus answered and said to them Destroy this temple and in 3 days I will raise it up. Who would raise the dead second person there? Christ himself. Okay? Now let's go look at Romans 10:18. I'm sorry, John 10:18. John 10:18. I'm going to start in 17 to give you a tiny bit more context. Therefore, my father loves me, the Lord Jesus says, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father who raises the second person, the son himself, Christ himself is said to be the one who raises him in that reference there. So we can say, and we must say, that God raises the Son. Father raises the Son. The Spirit raises the Son. The Son raises the Son. We can see that each person of the Trinity is credited with raising the Son from the grave. grave. And so we see that there is a unique equality to their power and authority over the death. We don't want to say something like God is the president, the Lord Jesus is the vice president, and the Spirit is the speaker, or something along these lines. We don't want to see some sort of uh, supreme authority and lesser authorities between the persons of the Trinity. We see they each one possess the same honor and the same authority. God's evangel, as we summarize what we're looking at here in Romans 1, God's evangel, God's good news, announces a king who was a king in David's line, who everybody had expected to rule forever. And this son could potentially be confused with the sons of men, so God's evangel tells us that this son is also declared to be the son of God. So God's evangel, the good news that is announced, God's good news is concerning this son, the son of David and the son of God. Two witnesses declaring this. David the king bows to this son because of the son's authority and the son's greatness. And it is deity wrapped in the humility of human flesh. And John 3.13 is really a pretty... Uh, amazing passage in this light, trying to understand the human nature and the divine nature of the Son. This passage in John chapter 3 is really quite amazing. I believe we've read this together in the past. The Lord Jesus says in verse 12, John 3 verse 12, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, listen carefully. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. Now, who is that speaking about? No one has ascended to heaven except for he who has come down from heaven. Who is that talking about? Jesus Christ, the Son, right? Now, keep reading. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, when he is speaking that, where is he standing? He's standing with them there in Jerusalem. But where does he say he is? He says he is in heaven. There is the Son of God proclaiming his omnipresence. He is everywhere at once. He he is there with them speaking to them. And he is in heaven. That is the full deity of the Son expressed to us. And so we are to really marvel. We are to glorify this son as who he is. He is God. He is God in the flesh. He is seen on earth, and at the same time, he has not left heaven. These are things we cannot really quite understand because they are too glorious for us. We, We don't understand how these things can be. But the divine son is the son of David and he is the son of God. Now, there's a very important thing for us now to understand about God's gospel. The gospel of God is concerning the son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is a relative of David and who is declared to be the son of God with power. The name Jesus Christ is given to us, and you're very tempted to just read over it like you know all there is for us to to take in and consider there. But what I want to remind you of and point out to you so that we don't miss this about God's evangel, God's gospel, God's good news, is that the name Jesus means save from sin. The name of Jesus means save from sin it's concerning the son jesus christ and in matthew 121 we are told why the lord jesus was to be given the name jesus when when the angel visits mary and is explaining he is explaining to her what is going to be happening to her what are you going to call the son who is born you're going to call him jesus and it says because he will save his people from their sin God's Gospel and Jesus, His Son, is a saving message, explaining a saving work. And I would would plead with you to take some time to grow in your understanding. Each one of you needs to grow in your understanding of the saving work of the Gospel. Because what we have a hard time understanding in our day and age, and maybe in all days and ages, is that men don't really grasp the thing that makes salvation necessary. Men don't understand truly what it is they need to be saved from or why they need to be saved. This is a thing that is evasive to us. And it has to do with sin, which is a very peculiar and malevolent, I want to call it a life force. Sin is a force at work in you and I. Sin is a force at work in all men. Let me give you a picture from Deuteronomy 32. There's a truth about mankind, all men, even those men closest to God. There's a truth about sin that just seems to constantly escape men in every generation. So Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 to 6. Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens. I'll wait for a couple of you to finish finding your way to Deuteronomy there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, is what Moses writes. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, rain drops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass, for I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And so you guys are, of course, familiar with the scriptures high view of his holiness and his righteousness and his justice, his greatness, all of his perfections and glory. We're we're very used to hearing that and we're fine with with upholding that. And then keep reading with me right after it says upright is he. The passage goes on to say they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? And the scripture here, as in many other places, men are exposed to their corruption and their perversity and their crookedness and their foolishness. And the reason that this is so offensive is, The reason that this is pointed out and rebuked to them is that they were created by him. They were created by this holy and righteous and just one. By his establishing. But they ultimately, and men always, ultimately reject his principles, his morals, his laws, his ways. Men always reject them. And they pursue their own way instead. Now, stay with me here, because his response is how we begin to get our mind around the gravity of sin. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. Go down a few lines there. Down to verse 35. Ultimately, what does the Lord God say about this rebellious People, He says, vengeance is mine and recompense. What does recompense mean? Payback. Payback. Payback is mine. Their foot shall slip in due time. Ponder the relationship between payback and the slipping foot. What is that meant to say? What it means is that eventually... You will stumble and fall and you will be repaid for your rebelliousness. You will be repaid for your sin. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. Moses here speaks about the foot that would slip and the prophet warns, you will run out of time. You walk along and you will slip and God's judgment will finally overtake you. All men discount sin. They think lightly of the holiness and the justice of God, but sin is the source. Sin is the source of everything that ruins humanity. But men, listen carefully, men love its smile. Men love the smile of sin. Men love the fragrance of sin. Men love the wealth and the safety of sin, and they rarely see its leeching and poisonous effect. Men rarely see it and respect it with appropriate fear. Some men believe little and infrequent and normal sin is quenched in the love of God. Normal little sins, regular little sins will just all be washed over in the love of God. And, and if you're not careful, you end up believing your own form of the good news by underestimating the ugliness and the perversity of sin. Men repaint God's love to be tolerant and understanding of sin. Men redefine sin to find themselves a place of comfort. I'm going to read you a quote from a commentator I've been reading. Listen to what he says. This was so good. He says, We must not be confused into thinking that God is love apart from any other attribute. You're not allowed to think about God being love apart and in and of itself, he says. In fact, if you say that God is love without realizing that God is hate, of sin you have no gospel at all because you do not have god the people who teach that god is love without teaching that god is also hate of sin have in reality another god who is satan with a mask on mm-hmm. You will never understand Satan if you do not realize that he loves to masquerade as God and that you will find him most often at church, in the pulpit, in the Bible class, preaching and praying with a mask of a saccharine God. You know what a saccharine God is? A a a falsely sweet God, a substitute sweet God with a mask of a saccharine God in front of his grinning face. You see, Jesus means Jehovah saves. His very name means Jehovah saves. Now, while men are born and live, they cannot imagine the death that awaits sin. They cannot imagine the death that awaits the recompense that comes to all men. They cannot perceive sin's depth. And therefore, salvation from sin is, very often, not an evangel. Salvation from sin really isn't very great news to men, because they just do not understand the deadliness of sin Sin is almost impossible for men to quantify. It's almost impossible for men to define and understand. We use words like falling short, doing wrong, making mistakes. Oops. (laughs) Sin is a state of mind, it's a state of being. It is a steady affection and interest and activity that is counter to the divine mind and affection and interest and activity. Sin holds that the or it holds that the divine law requires moral likeness to God. The divine law requires moral likeness to God. In the affections and tendencies of the nature as well as in it uh, in its outward activities sin is a thing a real thing that flows natively from the mind and heart and hand of all men that is not of the nature of god's perfections all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god And in reality, it seems that sin doesn't really so much fall. Sin doesn't fall, it stands. Sin stands, sin aims, sin does what it wants, despite the occasional prick of conscience. Sin is, by its very nature, something that must meet the holy response of God. Sin must be met with one thing and only one thing by the very nature and person of God. And we know that the wage of sin is death, but I don't think we really know the far left and the far right extremes of this thing. How sinful is sin and how deadly is this death? The evangel is specifically for those who have grasped sin's malevolent, consuming nature. When you get how deadly sin is, when you get its grip on you and its ability to pervert you, to lead you away from the Savior, when you get sin's relentless grab a hold of you, And when you begin to picture the death of death, then, and only then, is the evangel. Something that begins to draw and attract your ear and your heart. Sin has caused all of your godlessness and it's worse than cancer. Cancer can't kill you after you're dead. The death of sin is a death that never ends. And Jesus has said that those who die in their sins will go away to weeping and gnashing of teeth for the rest of eternity. Sin's reward is temporary pleasure and hardship and sadness in this life. And it is terror and suffering and loss and loneliness in the world to come. God's evangel. Is concerning Jesus Christ the Savior of sinners grieved, sinners lost, sinners apprised of God's hatred of sin and sin's slow and unwavering cunning that kills with a nature constantly rebellious to the holiness and perfection of God? Jesus came to save their people from their sins. The gospel of God is concerning his son. A man in the line of David. God, by testimony of the Holy Spirit. God's gospel promised beforehand by the prophets the good news is sin's foe. The good news is good news to sinners who dread and fear their death. So I just want to ask you one more question. Has your sin driven you to contemplate? Is your sin driven you to contemplate the offer Of God and Christ. The offer of God is to transfer your guilt onto the Christ. The offer of God is that the death of Christ would be a death substituted for the death you deserve. That is the evangel. There must be a death for your sin. As there must be light from the sun. Has your lostness, has your sinfulness, has your inescapable corruption in sin driven you to seek the righteousness of the perfect son? This is the evangel. And this is what Romans goes on to explore and explain in profound depth to you and I. God gives righteousness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Sin makes you unrighteous. God and God alone can make the sinner righteous with the substitutionary righteousness of the Son given to you by faith in the Son. This is God's evangel revealed to us in this great book. Oh, I... I pray you will spend time this afternoon and this day pondering on the grace of God that is offered even in the face of your ugly, relentless pursuit of the sin that is in you no matter what you do. We cannot <coughs> escape it. God saves us from it by His Son. When we repent and turn to Him and ask him for salvation. Will you pray with me for a second? Lord, we love you. We praise you for the Son, the Son of David and the Son of God, the Holy One who is promised in his perfect righteousness. We praise you, dear God. We praise you for these words. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen.